0: Hi, I'm Louise and I'm John and you're listening to the DCIF podcast. Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community.
1: We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members.
0: Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change.
1: This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans.
0: Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum.
1: Fantastic. Let's get on with the show.
0: Hi, John. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thanks. And you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. We've been having a really nice time, haven't we, recording a few podcasts in London the last couple of days. And this one with Bruno Bamberger was all about assessing climate risk in fixed income.
1: Yeah, because I suppose as we've gone through this series, understandably there's been a focus on equities given the important role it plays within a, within DC investment strategy. But we can't ignore fixed income because it's an incredibly important part as well. Not only as a diversifier, but also given the nature of fixed income assets more generally, the income is actually quite important when it comes to the latter stages of retirement savings and indeed when you come to actually spending that money. So it made sense for us to cover that as part of this fantastic podcast series. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting to to hear from Bruno because not only is fixed income interesting, but in keeping with the theme from this podcast series itself, we want to understand to what extent ESG sustainability and perhaps more importantly climate change can impact the way fixed income investors think about constructing portfolios. And indeed, the themes that they're bringing and products are bringing into the DC marketplace.
0: Yeah, definitely. Because in my head, when you talk about climate change and engagement, you tend to think about equities, not fixed income. And I think this episode with Bruno has really taught me that that's very much not the case and that a lot is also happening in fixed income when it comes to tackling climate change and addressing climate risk. Should we tell everyone who Bruno is? Yeah. So Bruno Bamberger is a senior solution strategist at AXA Investment Managers. So without any further ado, we'll hand over to our discussion with Bruno. Well, hello, good morning, Bruno. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Can you tell us a bit about you to start off with and and what your role is at AXA IM?
2: Great, yeah, and thanks for having me here today. So my role is a senior investment strategist. But what that means on a day-to-day basis is that I help UK pension schemes credibly implement responsible investment within their portfolios.
0: Amazing. And I was really interested to hear about what you wanted to talk about today. So assessing climate risk in a fixed income context. Because to be honest, it isn't something I'd thought loads about before. Can you tell us a bit about how assessing climate risk and fixed income differs to equity? That was my first question that jumped into my head.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think equities always get all the headlines. They always get all the attention. But fixed income is a pretty big asset class, actually bigger than the equity universe or the public equity universe, over sixty trillion dollars of debt outstanding so it's pretty important asset class yeah. and climate change is incredibly important across all asset classes and the impact it can have for investors but for fixed income in particular if you think at your how you make money and fixed income is to buy the bonds, to hold them so they don't default, they don't get downgraded. And that's where climate change can really come into it. Because if companies are impacted by climate change in some way or another, there's higher risk of them being downgraded and there's higher risk of them defaulting. So it's really important that investors look at it.
0: Yeah, of course. And in a DC investment context, how does fixed income differ to equity there? I mean, when we talked before this you were you were telling me a little bit about perhaps in the time horizons that d c investors face and how that differs in fixed income, perhaps to equity. Tell me a bit about that
2: yeah, of course, yeah well, fixed income for across, across both d c and d b schemes it's normally and because it's the same underlying members or underlying people at the end of it, it's normally towards the end of their journey, so more equities at the start, more fixed income at the end. If you think you have a pretty big allocation to fixed income within your portfolio as you're nearing retirement or as your scheme matures effectively and you go along that that journey plan, it's really important that you consider it from that perspective. Now, fixed income can have different maturities. Equities, you buy it, you typically hold it until you don't want to hold it anymore. Yeah. Fixed income, you could hold it for one year, three years, five years, 20 years. So if you think of it as, a say, a post-retirement offering, that could be for five years until members buy an annuity, it could be for 30 years because they keep holding it until the end. So actually, if you want to hold it for 30 years, some of those physical risks related to climate change, we're already seeing some today, but the sort of magnitude of what they could be in 30 years time is enormous.
0: Yeah, so I guess you have to be super, super diligent in assessing fixed income climate risk, right? So, So what are some of the main climate risks that fixed income managers consider kind of day to day? What do you think about when it comes to your investment process?
2: Yeah, the high level risks are pretty similar across all asset classes. So you've got physical risks and you've got transition risks. So physical risks being the ones people probably think of more on the day-to-day basis, so extreme weather events, things like water scarcity, which we're seeing a lot of in the news at the moment, that can impact companies, it can impact their supply chains, it can impact actually can they create revenue from what they're doing from creating their products, and that can impact all sorts of investors, equities, and fixed income. Then you get onto the transition risks, and actually that is as the world tries to transition to net zero emissions, to not having any cumulative emissions stop going up effectively across the world. Then you can have things like consumers changing habits, which I know I'm doing and many of the people I talk to are doing, perhaps at the margin, but I see that accelerating over time. You've got governments paying a lot more interest in it, regulations starting to come in, perhaps fines for high-emitting companies that aren't transitioning to net zero. And then you have investors like Acts for Investment Managers and many other investment managers and asset owners actually changing their allocations away from, say, climate laggards. And that could mean the pricing changes on those assets, which means it's really important. Even if you think net zero is not going to happen, if you think climate change isn't going to happen, What should matter is investors are changing their assets and that can have an
1: impact on asset prices. And I think well, one of the things we want to explore further on is product development when it comes to climate change, net zero, transition funds, for example. If I can take a step back, obviously with bonds, you can have one issuer, but they have one year, two year, five year, 10 year, 20 year bonds. I'm just wondering, you know, if you invest in a five year bond, climate change isn't really going to have a massive impact. So does that change the way that you engage with that particular issuer if you're owning it for a five year bond, for example?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The maturity is one aspect where it's particularly different from equities, and actually the length of maturity really impacts the risk. So actually there's a three, I think three main factors that impact climate risk in fixed income. So there's the the sector that you're in. So if you're in high emitting sectors, energy, basic materials, utilities, there's higher risk in those because you can have regulations, you can have fines, you can have stranded assets such as such as the oil majors. Then you've got maturity as well, which is is crucial, actually, because investing in a high emitting company for 30 years time, you have to be very sure that they're going to be transitioning to net zero in the near future. Otherwise, you're going to have really magnified risk in that bond. So it really does impact how our portfolio managers look at their fixed income
1: allocations is how high emitting and, and how much impact they have on the environment. And how do you assess climate change impact from a bond's perspective? Is it value impairment, probability of default? There's sort of two schools of thought it appears, but I'm just wondering how do you guys at Axe IM deal with it?
2: Yeah, it's very much integrated into the work that our credit analysts do. We don't think that you can separate out, this is our climate change research for this sector and this security, and here's our fundamental financial research. You have to do them together because... It is so intricate on a name-by-name name level. Where are they today? What are the risks? What are their supply chains? Even if you think within the same fairly small sector, people have got allocation to say emerging markets within their oil and gas portfolio. Some might have more than others. Some might have already started putting capex towards Greener strategies, some might not. So, you have to do it on a name by name basis. And that's really where the credit analysts come in. So, in terms of what metrics do they look at, really is how they impact the financials. How much of a traditional cash buffer do they have against things like regulations and fines? What risks are there to this portfolio from those sorts of things? So, it's all wrapped up into the financial analysis.
1: And how easy is it to actually get that level of information if you are a credit analyst to find the new pieces of data? And again, I think we'll probably explore this later on in terms of trustees requirement for data but from a credit analyst perspective to find the key ESG information is that becoming easier or has it always been easy or is it actually a bit of a struggle to get that stuff from the underlying issuers?
2: Certainly it's improved it's getting easier but it's not there yet I mean we don't have all the information and I actually doubt we'll ever have all the information we could ever want and know with full transparency what are the climate related risks because there's so many unknowns you actually we don't know ourselves and the top scientists don't know which direction, which scenario the world is going into. And actually, if we're in a one and a half degrees or a three degrees world in, you know, by 2100 or sometime in the future, that will have an extraordinary difference in the in the returns and the prospects of individual companies. Having said that, the data is is so much better than it used to be. And because companies know that investors such as ourselves are looking at these aspects, they want to give us the information because they still want our capital to fund their business.
0: That makes sense. I'm really interested in the net zero transition to 2030 versus 2050. And is there a kind of way that your analysts look at those different time horizons and think about risk? Do they think about risk in a different way or because obviously that's such a longer term time horizon or do they think about it? Yeah, like tell us a bit about how they think about that whole time horizon and and the difference between 2030 and 2050. If they do, maybe it's all just like universal. on
2: On a general Basis. I mean, we won't invest in issuers that have high climate risks for longer maturities. And it's it's as simple as that, really, because there's too many unknowns. Now, the team that I work in is in developed market investment grade credit. So it's probably, you know, the, the cleanest universe of the fixed income universe. If you're looking at high yield or, or deeply subordinated debt, if you're looking at emerging market debt, perhaps securitized assets where the data is a bit more murky, there's completely different considerations there. But if you're looking probably as close as you can get to, say, a global investment grade credit you know, mandate or portfolio. We just don't invest in those because we need the visibility of the cash flows. We need the visibility of, of where the money's actually going to come from because we don't want to have too much turnover. It's too expensive. And the, the impact of a default or a downgrade is just too high in fixed income when yields are, I was going to say they're low, not as low anymore, but still relatively low.
1: And is that a recent change to the investment process as a result of having to factor in ESG climate change considerations? Or has that always been there? That's something your analysts think about. It's always
2: been there from an ESG perspective. And so ESG being, in my opinion, relating to financial factors that you may not have considered before in your financial analysis. Although I say before, this has been obviously happening for quite a few years now. What we are doing is putting much, much greater emphasis on climate change. And the net zero transition, because we know, as I said, consumers, regulators, and investors are now putting so much more focus on it. We think it can move markets and move asset prices. So we have to give it more consideration.
1: So, as part of that, are you just amending existing portfolios to this new approach, or are you actually creating sort of new products along those lines?
2: We are favoring changing existing products because we think people are already invested, they should get best in class the difficulty i guess is saying what changes should you make today so one framework that we look at is the institutional investors group on climate change the iigcc they've got this framework which splits issuers into six categories they don't give you any data they do give you data but they're not climate aligned They're climate laggards don't care at all about net zero all the way up to net zero today what we can do in portfolios is just reduce all of the climate laggards, all those that are committed, but not really doing much to them. That has a huge impact. I mean, you're turning over, say, 40% of your portfolio can cost up to 1% for a full turnover. And I don't think many investors want those costs coming in now. And the second consideration when you're doing this, actually implementing it in portfolios is companies are still getting up to speed, especially some of the smaller ones. I mean, some of the major companies, especially on the European side, they know that investors are worried about climate change. They're coming up with those commitments. They're trying to change their business plans. The smaller you get and the further away from Europe you get the less they know about it but the more aware they're becoming so if in one year's time they set a net zero commitment you've already sold the bond do you buy it back again it's going to cost you quite a lot so first of all we're saying be pragmatic you know be aware don't just do a wholesale change in your portfolios but we have to start aligning them at some point and we think today is a good time to start
1: i suppose when we've been asking these questions always been in the context of corporate bonds Now, typically, DC schemes will more than likely invest in corporate bonds rather than gilts. But just if you can touch on the whole sort of sovereign bond, getting climate data, you know, we've done some exercises internally and it's been a real pain and it's very difficult to actually... You know, come up with a suitable metric that's actually relevant to an individual pension scheme. I imagine it's fairly similar to the stuff that you must be coming up with in terms of results.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I'll guilt, so I'll say sovereigns generally and the difficulty in, in the data there is that there are a couple of ways to measure it. So let's take the UK, for example. Should we measure everything that's consumed in the UK? So the car that you're driving actually probably was manufactured somewhere else, perhaps Germany, perhaps France, Japan perhaps. So is it all about consumption? In which case, you take on those imported emissions. If you think for developed markets, developed countries, they import a huge amount from the production houses of the world, China and India, and a lot in Southeast Asia as well. Or do you just take it on production basis? So what's produced in the UK, which is far less because we have big financial services industry. And so there's some some arguments about that. And then there's also, can you aggregate this data with Corporates, which is another thing, often asset owners particularly want to see what's my portfolio level emissions, but how do you aggregate sovereigns and corporates data is actually very difficult to do. So at the moment we're splitting it out, but we're just providing clarity on what we're doing and what's our methodology on it. Sovereigns is far more
1: difficult than corporates. Thanks. And just going back to the piece about sort of portfolio alignment metrics, clearly it's going to come into TCFD reporting from 1st of October this year. And again, just going back to that point about the availability of data and the six categories, I think it is, how easy is it to actually assign, you know, a rating of one to six to each company that you hold within a portfolio? Can you get 100% coverage? Is it only 50? Because I guess the percentage of coverage will, I suppose, give you an idea as to how relevant the actual data is that's coming back.
2: Yeah, we think one of the benefits of using the IAGCC six categories or six buckets is that actually, because you use your analysts to do it, they can look into the details. They can get coverage near enough at a hundred percent. And I'll just contrast that versus something like the Science Based Targets Initiative, which is a brilliant initiative. Investors are all collaborating around it. But if you look at something like the Sterling Non-Gilts Index, which is a pretty, you know, well used index within both UK DB and DC schemes or as a sort of investable universe the SBTI coverage is about 40%. So if you want a portfolio alignment statistic, yes, you can look at it for that 40%, but you can't actually look at it for the rest. And some key sectors like financials and energy aren't covered under SBTI or there's not a high level of coverage. So like you're saying, how can you look at portfolio level alignment with a small amount of coverage? So we think getting up to 80 to 90% is enough coverage to think, okay, I can actually make some tangible decisions based on
0: this. So, John and Bruno, I guess you know, as investment managers, you hear a lot from pension schemes at the moment that obviously their workloads increase enormously in terms of getting all this reporting and asking for different metrics. And the kind of consistency of reporting right now isn't always that easy to get right as a as a trustee. How do you think the industry is working to solve that problem? And do you feel like the templates are, that are sort of emerging are helping with that? Is is that? things moving in the right direction?
2: It's only been a lot of work to get all the data, first of all, to decide what sources of data you want. Do you want to rely on third-party data providers? Or do you want to get it direct from the source? And how are you going to deal with all of that data, not just the breadth of it, but across asset classes, across time as well? And then there's putting it all into these templates and trying to get it consistent. So we know that we are one part of a portfolio that is going to have at least five other parts, different asset classes, perhaps different ways of calculating. So putting it in some of these templates like the PLSA template can actually help investors do it on an aggregated basis because they know it's the same methodology that's being used across all of their managers.
1: Yeah, I think I would sort of echo that and perhaps just take it back. I think there's, it's not as if there's not a desire from the asset management community to produce the information. I think that needs to be said. The challenge is actually extracting the data and the templates are a great way to help make it easier for us. But what we do tend to find along in Aberdeen, particularly with the big clients, not DC, but DB, they're actually looking for the information sliced in a slightly different way. So it might be Climate Action 100, TPI, SBTI... And that is just manual at the moment. So it's, again, it's not that we don't want to do it. It's just it's that it's a very, very manual job. And hopefully with you know the likes of the, the templates, et cetera, it should mean theoretically that what we're being asked is in a standardized format. However, sometimes clients aren't as straightforward as we'd like them to be.
0: <laughs> and do you think we'll get to a place where this sort of data reporting is like automated? Is that the end goal? Or can it ever be automated? Do you From a asset need... manager's
2: perspective, absolutely. That's <laughs> the end goal because so. really we want... All the useful information to be part of standard quarterly reporting which is what we're aiming towards but we're still in this fact-finding mission where like john said we're speaking to primarily our largest investors because they're the ones that are often at the forefront they've got the resource to actually know what to dig into and perhaps they can spend a bit more money on on consultants and data third-party data providers to aggregate this they're asking the really detailed conversations and i think they're often they're actually doing a lot of the hard work that smaller schemes will need to be doing in the future really, because they're finding out what's the most important. They'll publish their TCFD reports because they have to do it sooner anyway. Some of them already have. And then the smaller schemes can look at those. I'm not going to say copy and paste, but actually use the same framework so they can do it and hopefully do it for cheaper because this is going to cost schemes.
1: Yeah. And maybe we're at a stage where it's peak ESG data requirements. And as time goes on, maybe the bigger schemes might realise we don't actually need all of that. There's maybe two or three reports that are actually the best. But I think at the moment, they just want to get as much information as they possibly can to understand what is the most relevant and then take it from there.
0: That makes sense. So we've talked a bit about engagement and stewardship already, but I'm again, I'm sort of interested to hear a bit more about it from a fixed income perspective. Does it differ from the way that equity managers approach this, or is the approach very much the same? How does it? How does that work?
2: It's certainly newer in in fixed income. So yeah. equities have been engaging, stu- you know, doing stewardship. They've been voting at company meetings since the start of equities. I would the start guess. of time. Yeah. Yeah. Start <laughs> <of> time. Whereas <laughs> I think there's <laughs> renewed focus on the fixed income front. So. Engagement has always been happening. Credit analysts, portfolio managers, traders, they speak to companies and issuers and say, this is what we want from you. Effectively, we want a five-year bond, 10-year bond. We don't think this level of seniority is important. So the informal engagement has always been happening. I think it's happening much more so now in the, I guess, the impact side or or trying to drive positive impacts through your bond investments. How's it different well, you don't vote at company meetings, but I think people focus around that and say, engage for your equity, divest your debt. But right. personally, I, I actually completely disagree with that one because you can engage through fixed income. You can still have the initial conversations with senior management. You can still escalate it in many of the ways that you can do with equities. Yes, you can't vote at the meeting, but you can still divest, you can still stop reinvesting. And as I said before, it's actually a huge, huge market. And a market that covers bits that equities often don't cover. So that could be on the sovereign side, can't invest in the equity of a sovereign. It could be privately held companies that have got public debt. So Mars, for example, privately held company, you can't vote with Mars, but you can engage through the fixed income market. So it's got a broader scope than the equity side has.
1: If we can just go back, we we're talking about your role at the very outset and what you do and it's trying to sort of integrate, if I understood you correctly, and I probably got it down slightly wrong, but hopefully it's the same gist, but sort of invest in an ESG mindset or sustainably without necessarily impacting the financial results, I think is how you classified it. That must be a real challenge and you're finding that when you're engaging with clients, DB or DC, they're saying, well, we actually like what you're telling us, but we don't want to necessarily, or we don't believe we can do it in a way that doesn't jeopardise our fiduciary responsibility. Is that something you're coming up against or are you finding that most clients are saying, hey, we're on board this, let us know the sorts of things we can do?
2: It's certainly been a... Let's take stock first. I haven't had any clients that have said, just invest in net zero bonds in our portfolio, please. Everyone wants to know, what's your emissions? Probably more importantly, what's your philosophy around dealing with climate change, be that climate-related risks or aligning to net zero? So it's definitely been the fact-finding start. And now we're actually starting to see clients saying, okay, you've got, say, 5% in the climate laggards bucket, 5% that aren't interested at all in climate change typically US-based, if I can say that, and there's been some really interesting conversations happening and laws passed in the US about not, you can't integrate ESG within your portfolio. So just mm-hmm. speaking generally, US-based are typically less, less interested than European ones. But So no client has ever said, I don't care about the financials, just give me net zero. But they are being pragmatic and actually starting to make those changes. So excluding climate laggards or not reinvesting in climate laggards is, is probably the simplest example of that.
1: And does that then lead itself to a new range of funds going forward? So I think going back to one of the earlier comments you made, it was about taking existing, it's called it an all-stocks fund, and just making it much more sustainable, ESG-friendly, net-zero aware. But as is there a new range of funds that are coming out that are specifically designed to target net-zero or climate transition, for example? You know, How are you seeing things within within your firm?
2: Yeah, so across the firm, I think there's probably, I could say, four categories of funds that are looking at climate change so the first ones will be the net zero aligning aligned so also part of the transition category and the FCA has actually come out I don't think it's been finalized yet but aligned with the EU they've got their article 8 and article 9 the FCA came out with one that actually had as part of the sustainable range so the sort of best range from sustainability they had a transitioning category because accepting that high emitting companies can be transitioning and therefore can have some positive impact. So we're seeing the net zero category, which are aiming for net zero within their portfolios. They might not be net zero today. There's green bond funds. I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned is that actually you can get different types of security for the same issuer. So you have use of proceeds bonds. So green bonds, sustainability bonds and different conversation, but social bonds as well. So we're getting those sorts of funds. And because there are more green bonds being issued, because everyone's more interested in them, the green bond universe has actually expanded. And so it's sort of across a much greater area of sectors. So actually for a core fixed income, you could be able to replace a core fixed income portfolio with a green bond portfolio. Some characteristics are different, but that's another way. And then the third one would be a low transition, a low carbon approach, which is effectively cutting out all your high emitters, not really thinking about those and just investing in say financials, healthcare, telecoms, all those have got low emissions. If you want low emissions today portfolio. And the final one, if I just go one more, is SDG aligned, so Sustainable Development Goal aligned. We are seeing some interest in those. They tend to have a broader scope, so not just climate change, SDG 7, clean energy, SDG 13, climate action, but also more of the people and planet side. So you, you approach climate change and the people aspect together in one portfolio.
1: And in terms of the interest from clients, are you finding that that interest is coming more from the say, the retail, you know, I suppose the individual investor rather than DC schemes? Because I suppose the big thing is this fiduciary responsibility and trustees need to be very careful that they don't sort of stray into some kind of moralistic type approach. So are you, in the same way that we saw it with equities where they went from a traditional passive fund to an ESG tilted approach, are you finding the same sort of journey, if I want to call it like that, in fixed income as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's the same conversations that we're having across the board. I wouldn't say either institutional or retail are more more or less advanced. There's equal interest from them. I think for perhaps retail investors, they have more say over what they want. Whereas when you have a trustee body, they have to almost be more prudent because they have to make sure they're definitely not giving up any of the financial objectives. And so there's probably actually more questions from in- institutions about first of all don't give up the financials of what you're doing or at least try and improve them from integrating climate change whereas from a retail side it's probably more of a thematic approach and saying okay I want net zero aligned I'll ask you some some questions about it or wholesale you know um including that as well but actually it's more of a they've got more of a say over it whereas institutions definitely have to be more prudent
0: which kind of brings us quite nicely into I guess it's a big world for DC pension trustees there's, there's a lot of different funds out there and you know, everyone is talking about climate change. How do you separate the managers who are really, you know, walking the walk from the managers who might be just kind of, you know, everyone's talking about um, greenwashing and green chat. There's a lot of very convincing green chat out there. What kind of killer questions should trustees be asking when they're choosing between managers? I think,
2: yeah, having the conversation is the first thing to do. So getting an idea of a manager's philosophy, you can actually... Get an idea from speaking to not just people like myself, but the actual portfolio managers that are making the decisions to buy and sell bonds within the portfolios. How much are they interested in it? How much information do they have? Are they just outsourcing it to a separate team and they think it's not their responsibility? That's quite a crucial bit. And you can really only get those from face to face or perhaps teams meetings nowadays. Then you've got things like it's the basics, getting your carbon emissions. How are they viewing those carbon emissions? Do they think that's bad? Are they just going to outright sell? the highest emitters. So going back to the philosophy again, what sort of portfolio alignment statistics? So just gathering all this information and then move on. And this is a bit like how we work with investment consultants is, what resources do you have to do it? What what tools do you have? How are you monitoring climate related risks and net zero alignment across all your issuers in your portfolio? And then really crucial, and we haven't touched on it, is actually how are you reporting it to asset owners? Because you can be doing all the great work within the portfolio, If you're not reporting it to asset owners, how can they know
1: about that? Um, The challenge we find with investing full stop, and Aberdeen's probably as guilty as as all the other asset managers, there's lots of acronyms and things like that. You've talked about social bonds and green bonds. Can you just explain a little bit about what a green bond is and a social bond is? Because they might be creeping into portfolios, but I think for DC schemes more generally, it's unlikely they're going to go all out and just invest in a a green bond fund. But can you just explain a little bit about what they are and, and how they differ from a conventional bond?
2: Yeah so so green bonds very similar across all the others the best way to think is a use of proceeds bond so the proceeds from raising so issuing debt raising capital through a use of proceeds bond when they come to the market those let's say they raise 100 million that 100 million has to go directly towards projects that are financing something something green so it could be I like to think of wind farms but there's so many different examples of it it could be providing Green loans, if you're a financials company that's raising a green bond, those proceeds have to go towards that. And they're actually ring-fenced, or they should be ring-fenced, to be properly called a green bond. There's the risk of greenwashing, of course, it's huge, and we're asked about it all the time, where issuers might raise debt for a green bond, but actually the proceeds goes into the general slush fund. They might pay for other things other than those green projects. So when we're doing the analysis, the first thing is that it has to be ring-fenced. You have to know what that money is going towards. Is it going towards a green project? And a green project that's having a tangible improvement, something they wouldn't have already been doing. So additionality from that perspective. is the same for a social bond as well, but the proceeds go towards directly towards social projects. And sustainability bonds, they can be a mix of both green and social. So it could be, again, from a financials company, some of the money is going towards green projects, some is going towards social projects as well. And those are ring-fenced, so they're separate from the proceeds of a traditional bond.
0: And social, that could be social housing. We always think about social housing. What what else? What other kind of social projects are there?
2: Yeah, there could be micro-financing. So for less advantaged people, making sure they've got access to finance is a really crucial bit in, yeah. in playing. It actually relates almost back to climate change again when you say you want to just transition, really. So you want to make sure when you're making changes to the world effectively from the capital that you're investing, you want to make sure it's done equitably so everybody is actually... It's difficult to do it equitably, but as equitable as you can, so you don't have those disadvantaged people. And social bonds can actually help towards that.
1: Just thinking back to sort of TCFD reporting for the bigger schemes, you know, it's difficult to get data at the best of times. But for those schemes that are having to do their sort of year two reports, so the schemes of sort of five billion and master trust, et cetera, how easy will it be to compare sort of year one to year two? Because I imagine the data is better in year two, so it might look like actually things of got worse because the emissions data has actually increased, but that's only because of just availability of data. I imagine we're going to be in that sort of stage for sort of a couple of years. just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. And in general, do you just think that we'll get to a point where data availability will be pretty high and therefore meaningful comparisons on a year-on-year basis will be, will be available?
2: We're definitely in the ramp-up stage for, I say, coverage-level data, but also not just There's an issuer that's now got data, but also the credibility of the data. So companies themselves are still growing. They might have made some estimates in their carbon emissions data. That's fair enough. It's really difficult to calculate it for, say, a very large company where all your emissions are coming from. So both scope of data will increase and credibility of data will increase as well. And you have to factor that in, like you say, if a very high emitter hasn't published data before, and this year they do publish the data, your carbon emissions are gonna go up. So again, it's having that conversations with your asset manager, and ideally your asset manager coming to you as an investor and saying, this is why the emissions come up. We're not worried about it because it's not because they're failing in their carbon emissions objectives, but it's just that new data has come on board. The other aspect to consider is that we typically, when you're looking at targets, looking at scope one and two at the moment, scope one and two being, I guess, direct company emissions. So from creating your widgets and from purchasing the electricity to create your widgets, that's scope one and two emissions. Scope three emissions is when you look at the value chain. So upstream and downstream, what have you bought to create your widget? And what's the use of the widget? Is it burning petrol, for example, of a car downstream as well? Scope 3 emissions are coming in. The coverage of the data is lower and the credibility of the data is definitely lower as well. Because the more you go downstream, the smaller the companies are. It might be a very small company that just doesn't have the same regulations. So carbon emissions data is certainly going to be a huge factor. And one thing we're looking to do is try and split out from year one to year two, what has been the drivers of your carbon emissions change? Is it from the company's decarbonizing? Perfect, that's what we all want to happen. Is it from new data coming on board? If you're looking at carbon intensity, which considers the revenues of company, have revenues gone up and down? Or is it because you've done an asset allocation change, you've turned over, you've sold your highest emitters, your carbon emissions have dropped by half? And you have to think, what do you want from it? You might want a low emissions portfolio, that's great, but you might actually want to make a tangible change in the real world, which, and then you look at the absolute emissions.
1: So, just thinking back to the sort of carbon emissions, you know, crude way of reducing them, all other things being equal would be to remove, say, utilities. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen you present on that before. But what does, I suppose, A, utilities, what percentage of a typical credit index do they represent? And what actually happens to the risk-reward dynamics of the remaining portfolio if you do exclude utilities? Is it, is it meaningless? Is it meaningful? What sort of scale of change do we see in both the risk and return characteristics?
2: yeah just on a calculation we did so utilities are roughly 10% of the sterling non gilts universe in terms of market you know, sector weight within the universe if you look at how much they contribute to the carbon emissions of the sector it's over half of it so from 11% market weight or 10% market weight to over half of the carbon emissions of it so clearly 10% turnover you could exclude that entire sector cut your carbon emissions in half tomorrow brilliant that's job done right but actually the issue is that utilities, pretty good spread available. So typically a bit higher than the, the spread or, or the yield available on the sterling non gilts index. So you could give up some potential future returns from it. They're actually pretty stable. They're all regulated issuers typically, and therefore they're stable. And for fixed income investors across, specifically for DC schemes, but also DB schemes as well, you normally go into fixed income because you want stability. You don't go into it because you want large upside potential. So by cutting out a stable part and fairly large part of the investable universe, you could increase your risks there as well. And finally, utilities, because they're such high emitters, we actually need the world to decarbonise the utilities to get the world to net zero. So yes, you can cover your eyes, exclude all your highest emitters, but your members are still going to be impacted by the factors of climate change if we don't transition those utilities to net zero.
1: In the same way with equities, the sort of common thought is it's actually better to be at the table than not. Is that the same sort of thought generally on the credit side of things as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the only
2: difference I would say is if you are particularly interested in mitigating all risks. Let's say you're nearing retirement or you're some way into post-retirement, you want to mitigate risks within your portfolio, and therefore it's a financial decision. I'm going to remove that from the net zero decision. You shouldn't just stay invested. Blindly, but you have to look at it on a financial basis. So, if it is a very risky company that's perhaps not transitioning to net zero from a financial basis, you should take it out of your portfolio anyway.
0: Thank you, Bruno. Wow, I feel like we've really grilled you in this conversation. And I guess what this has taught me is there is so much going on under the surface. When you look at fixed income, you know, perhaps you don't. Think about all the you know the huge amount of work that you're all doing to mitigate climate risk. Just to close, really, how positive do you feel about the duration of travel in the industry? Do you feel like we're getting there when it comes to the fairly ambitious targets that we've set ourselves as as a world? I mean, it feels as though Europe, you've already said Europe's further ahead than the US. Do you feel like that's improving?
2: It is improving dramatically, I think the one and a half degrees optimum scenario from the 2015 Paris Agreement is going to be a real challenge. It needs technological breakthroughs. It needs all sectors, all countries to be aligned. And then it will still be a challenge, but I think it's doable. With different areas, perhaps less keen on doing it, it's going to require some political clout. And we often, when I'm talking to particularly our largest pension scheme clients, it gets into the politics, really. So what are countries willing to give up to perhaps fund emerging markets to decarbonise. In today's world, with a cost of living crisis, it actually becomes quite difficult politically for them to say we're going to spend 100 billion or something per year on emerging markets to get them to decarbonise. So, mm. But I would, to counter that uh, negative aspect of it, and that goes into the politics, is there is such a mindset shift over the last couple of years from, from asset owners, from consultants, and I believe, from asset managers as well, talking about Axra im and our peers in terms of what we're doing and the data we're getting. And the better that is, I think the more likely we are to be able to transition investors' portfolios to something which is net zero aligned.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bruno. Thanks so much for talking to us.
2: Okay. Thanks for having me. You've
1: been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum.
0: Head over to dcif.co.uk where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, Follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform.
1: Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World, New Opportunities.